Let's just pray together for a moment. Our God and our Father, we come into your presence again this morning in the name of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we praise you, Lord, for that love that we have sung about, a love that uh, is beyond comprehension, a love that is beyond comparison. That there is no love deeper, no love wider, no love higher. And it calls to us, Lord, and it invites us to surrender all. And even as we've prayed in our singing, Lord, make us wholly yours, we recognize, Father, that we hold on so much to ourselves and so much to our stuff and so much to our circumstances that it's hard for us to let it go. And yet, in light of your love, Lord, we know it's the only rational, right thing to do but to give ourselves wholly to you, to hold nothing back, to allow you, Lord, to be our Lord. But we pray, Father, as we spend this time in your presence and in your word, we ask, O oh God, that our hearts might be attuned by your Spirit to receive from you that which you have for us, recognizing that we are just on a journey, making progress a little every day, that we won't arrive this side of heaven, Lord. We recognize that, but we want to press on. We want to continue on. We want to keep growing. We want to keep persevering. We want to keep moving forward in your grace, Lord, becoming more like Jesus today and uh, this week and this year than we were like we were yesterday or the week before or last year. And so we pray, God, that as we are uh, touched by your Spirit today, Lord, we pray that none of us would leave here unchanged, that it would be good for us to be here, Lord, and that your Word would speak to us even as we ask these things for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We are concluding our series today on loving the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. I would direct your attention to Mark's Gospel, chapter 12, again, as we look again at this very familiar passage. In verse 28, one of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, what commandment is foremost of all? And Jesus answered, the foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Augustine Weta, in his book on humility, writes about his entry into the monastic life. When I first entered the novitiate here at St. Louis Abbey, my novice master asked me, what do you have to offer that would make us want to take you? I told him I was smart, hardworking, and clean. He said, you're not ready. Every day he would ask me the same question, and every day I would think of some other admirable quality, and every day he would tell me I wasn't ready. Finally, after one particular rough morning, I told him I had nothing to offer. Now you are ready, he said. This is the gospel paradox. We really do have nothing to offer, yet God wants us anyway. We have nothing to give. We have nothing to do. We don't have, uh, as it were, resources 
that we are to like give God and say, oh, here, God, this will fill up what you're lacking. We really have nothing to offer. He doesn't need us. We're not doing him a favor when we obey his commandments. We're not giving him something that he needs, nor is he in any way diminished if we withhold our obedience. He is altogether self-sufficient, secure, and satisfied in himself. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need our money. He doesn't need our time. He doesn't need our talents. We're not doing him any favors when we devote ourselves to his cause. If we think, oh boy, I gave God something this weekend. That must mean he's really happy with me and now he's surely going to bless me. Listen to the story Jesus told. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Will any of one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you are commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty. You see, a lot of times when we think about our relationship with God and we think about it in, in ungodly and unbiblical ways, we often think of it like in a transactional way. That, that we give something to God and he gives something back to us. Or that God promises something contingent upon certain circumstances that we must fulfill in order to receive them. Now, in some cases, that may be true in some situations. But when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we need to understand that we're starting out in a bankruptcy position. We don't have any assets that are owned. All we have are liabilities. And when we come to God, we don't come to God as though we can have a transaction where, you know, we, you know he does 90% and we do 10%. Or he does 95% and we do 5%. It's not the way it works. We come in a bankrupt position. And when we come to God, we're, we're, we're really basically asking for forgiveness. We're beggars seeking. We're seeking forgiveness. We're seeking pardon. We're seeking from him that which we do not have ourselves. And we start out in a position where we learn what it, grace is, we learn what mercy is, we learn what love is, not because of what we do for God, but what he has done for us already in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we come to this study of this great commandment. And why do I talk about this? Because we need to understand that this is the greatest commandment, to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. But we must not get into our mindset that if we accomplish this, we've done something like, you know, that God owes us now. Or that somehow we're doing him a favor by our obedience. Or that we're special and that we're really praiseworthy because we've done what we're supposed to do. Jesus says you need to not think that way at all. If I were to love God from the moment I woke up to the moment I closed my eyes asleep with everything I had and I would love my neighbor as myself 24-7, I would only be doing what I'm supposed to do. It's not something special. And it's not supposed to be extraordinary. This is just the way it's supposed to be. 
And so when we come here, on the one hand, we have this idea that we look at these commandments and we think to ourselves, these commandments, this commandment to love God with everything we have is somehow so far beyond my reach that it really belongs in a monastery or it really belongs among the super spiritual or it really belongs among some super saint who's like just sort of like on the mission field or serving the poor in some skid row situation. And so we think about it in that context. And we remove it out of our lives and think, well, it's not for me. But what Jesus is saying is there's no other commandment greater than this. This is the way it's supposed to be. And then we think to ourselves, well, maybe, maybe I should just try harder or give it my best shot or just devote a little bit more time and energy to this and we misunderstand it because the commandment itself is without power to change us. It is the gospel that changes us. As we saw last week, the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so we began this whole series four weeks ago understanding that to love God with our heart required a heart transplant. That we don't even understand what love is apart from the love of God. That the Apostle John would say, we love because he first loved us. And what we need to understand that salvation is not a reward for the righteous, but a gift for the guilty. And that when we come to God, we come to him as beggars, we come to him as broken, we come to him as sinners, and we avail ourselves of the great gift we sang about this morning. Such love that Jesus would go to the cross, that he would suffer in my place, and he would shed his blood to pay the penalty for my sin, that by his death I might live, that by his sacrifice I might go free, that by his suffering I might know peace, love, and joy. And that when he was buried in the grave, there was a kind of finality about it. That when he was put in the grave, it was basically, yeah, Jesus really died. He really suffered and he really died. And they put his body in the tomb. But as we're going to be celebrating in just a few weeks, we recognize that that's not the end of the story. Amen? That, that on the third day, he rose triumphant from the grave. And what was God doing in that resurrection? Well, first of all, death had no right to Jesus. Death had no claim to Jesus. He was the righteous one who didn't need to die, didn't deserve to die, but he gave up his life freely. And so death had no claim on him. Secondly, God was telling the world, Paul says in Romans chapter 1, that this is the Son of God. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Through the resurrection, he is declared to be the Son of God. And in that moment, he is letting everyone know that his sacrifice, once and for all, was sufficient for the task it was set out to do. That's why the writer of the Hebrews would say that he is able, he is able to save completely those who come to God through faith in him because he ever lives to make intercession for them. His life is a never-ending life, and he will always be our Savior. He will always be in the place of our intercessor. And so no matter where you've come from, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, if you go to Jesus and you go to him right now and you ask him to save you, he won't save you just for today. He won't save you for tomorrow. He will save you completely forever. Amen? 
That's the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's the heart transplant that we get. Because what happens is this life that I had before Christ isn't capable of even loving myself. Much less loving others. And forget about loving God who I can't even see. This life that I live now, Paul says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, when you become a, a Christian, the Bible uses the word to talk about being born again or born from above. It's a new life, a new birth, a new kind of existence. It's not just my old life reshaped and reformed. It's a brand new life. The Bible says is eternal life. It's his life in me. And that life, that life comes from God to me through Jesus by his spirit and I become a new creation. And so that's where we start with this command to love God with all our heart. And then we saw that we move from this very internal, invisible experience into the soul. And the word soul there is the word breath, to love God with my breath. And the idea that there is no place where I'm breathing that I'm not supposed to be loving God. Because the soul is my life. My breath is, is inseparable from my life. You stop breathing, you're dead. That's the way it works. And so the reality is, is what Jesus is saying is, your life, the way it's lived, where you work, where you play, who you associate with, anywhere you're breathing, that's where you're supposed to be loving God. And then last week we talked about how we need to have our minds renewed because our old thinking is still hanging out in our heads and the patterns of thought and the values and the beliefs that we held before we were Christian, they didn't just go magically disappear, but we need to have our minds renewed, the Bible says. The Bible says we need to have our minds renewed and by that our, our lives are transformed. And that's what it means to love God with our mind, with our imagination, with our attention, with our reason, with our memory. This is what's supposed to be loving God with, devoting that. And again, we see this dynamic where Jesus isn't breaking us into little pieces. He's trying to bring all those broken pieces back together again into one single whole. That that whole is centered on loving God and loving others. And so we come now to the final piece, to this command, to love God with all our strength. To love God with all our strength. What does that mean? Well, this is a very interesting word, the word strength here. And, and because it, it's interesting because the word strength it, uh, in the ancient Greek meant power. It could, be, it could be translated as power. To love God with all my power. In the Aramaic, it was translated as wealth. To love God with all your wealth. The word actually just literally means muchness or veriness. It literally is veriness or muchness. To love God with all your muchness. Well, what is your muchness? What is the veriness of your life? What is that all about? Well, it's about your possessions. It's about the stuff of our lives. But it's also about your person. The very person you are. It's about the powers you possess. Every one of us here have power. Every one of us have energies. Every one of us have influences. Every one of us have that which is unique to us. 
whether they be our time, our talents, or our treasure. In other words, to love God with my strength means that I bring to bear into my relation with God the very stuff of my life in all of its energy, in all of its force. It's interesting about uh, this idea of treasure. We actually read it in the first meeting this morning. Uh, Jesus said to lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Isn't it interesting that our heart follows our treasure and not the other way around? Jesus did not say that where your heart is, there will be your treasure. Now you think about that. Think about the distinction in that. In other words, what I invest in, what I pour into, what I spend treasure on, my heart's going to follow that. I remember when I was um, in high school, uh, there was a guy in my math class. He did not like me. In fact, he was a Christian and he just tormented me all the time. Mocking me, ridiculing me, uh, just was harassing me all the time about my faith. It got to the point where I really wanted him to die. I really did. I just was kind of hoping that, you know, some miraculous thing would happen and he'd get hit by a car or something, you know, just go away, disappear, leave me alone. Okay, and I remember being taught this verse that where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Well, listen, I can tell you of all the emotional experiences I had regarding this person, love was not on the list. I did not love him as myself. I did not like him. I did not want him around. I didn't want him on earth. But how do you love your enemy? How do you love those who abuse you? How do you love those who don't like you? You know, it's an interesting thing about human beings because we're social animals. We tend to reflect emotionally the emotions that are directed at us. If I know that you don't like me, it's not very long before I start not liking you. And so how do we change that dynamic? Well, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And so God showed me what I needed to do. I needed to start praying for that guy. Why? Because what's your number one treasure you have in this life? Time. Ask anybody who's on death row what they wouldn't give for another day. Ask anyone who's dying from terminal cancer what they wouldn't give up to have another week, another month another year you see when we look at all the treasures we have in our lives whether they be property or portfolios the reality is that time is our most valuable treasure and yet it's the one thing we waste so much but time is your most valuable treasure and so when I started praying for this young man something began miraculously happening because I was putting treasure into this young man. I was pouring treasure into him. I didn't really 
care about him while I was praying. I was praying because I was supposed to. It says pray for your enemies. Love your enemies. Lord, I just, I'm just going to pray for him. And I wasn't praying to be nice to me. That would be kind of selfish, right? Lord, please make him nice to me. I just started praying that God would bless him, that God would, would save him, that God would, and something miraculous happened in me. He didn't particularly change. But something miraculous happened in me. And you see, when we love God with all our heart, there's a real uh, soul, mind, and strength. There's a real dynamic of, of seeing God work when we trust Him. And this idea that He says to us, love me with all your strength, Love me with all your strength means that I'm going to pour out my treasure for him. And time is one of the most valuable things that we have to give our, our God. Loving God with what is at my disposal. You know, a lot of times when we think about, about serving God, about loving God, there's always tomorrow. In other words, things are not just right yet. If I had more time, I would serve the Lord. If I had more energy I would serve the Lord. If I didn't have to work so many hours or when I graduate high school or when I graduate college or when I get a better job. In other words, there's always a reason why it's not yet. It's going to come soon, but not now because right now my life isn't like the way I want it to be and I don't have enough time. And yet, love God with all your strength, not someone else's strength. What do you have at your disposal? This means that we call, one author writes, this means that the call to love God is not only with our physical muscle, but with everything we have available for honoring God, which includes our spouse, our children, our house, our dorm room, our pets, our wardrobe, our tools, cell phones, music, movies, computers, and time. In other words, loving God with all my strength means I love God with what's at my disposal. When we think about loving God with all our strength, we think about our work. Now, think about this for a moment. Those of us who are employed, some of us are retired, but many of us are working full-time, your work is where you spend the majority of your life. That's a depressing thought sometimes when you think about it. You really bummed me out today, Ken. Never really thought about it that way. You spend more time at work than you do with your spouse, than you do with your children, than you do in church. Think about that. And yet so often, we just exclude that from our life with God. The vast majority of my day is not spent with my wife, it's not spent with my kids, it's not spent at church. It's spent at a place that has no business with God. Am I, am going, am I, am I not going to love him there? That's why the Apostle Paul would write to the Colossians, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. So when you go to school, when you go to school, put this verse in your locker, Colossians 3.23. 
And you go to your locker and you open your lock, open your locker, and you'll see that verse posted right there. Whatever you do, do it with all your heart is to the Lord and not to men, because you serve the Lord Christ. When you go to work in the morning, acknowledge him in all your ways. Recognize that your job is not just a job, but it's a place where you shine for Jesus. Now, I'll be honest with you, like in most of my life, I fail miserably at these things. But I recognize that there is a, a life that I live in the flesh, and that includes my work. The life that I live in the flesh includes going to school, preparing lessons, teaching high school students. It involves interacting with my colleagues in the office. It involves dealing with parents. Do I pray for them? Do I pray for my administration? Do I pray for my students? The answer is I'm, I'm rebuked by these things. I get started and I get all enthusiastic at the beginning of the school year and I'm praying and doing things. And then the routines just take over. And the pressures take over. And the problems take over. And I have to be reminding myself all the time that what you do, you do for the Lord Christ. This is what it means to love God with your strength. What it means to love God with your strength. Your work, as one author writes, isn't just a means to an economic end. Nor is it something you need to get over with in time for the weekend. It is an essential part of your sanctification. One of the things that, that God will do is he will use the things in your life to make you more like Jesus. And since you're spending most of the time with your employment, he's going to use your employment to make you more like Jesus. Whether that employment is going to class, whether that employment is waiting on tables, whether that employment is teaching children, doesn't matter what it is. It's an essential part of your sanctification. Again, we are taught by our culture and our society that there are boxes. There are boxes in our lives. And there's a compartment that is labeled work. And you have this box. And the reality is, is that God is not interested in boxes. He can't fit in any boxes. He doesn't belong in any boxes and he won't tolerate boxes. And so, Brother Lawrence says this, be accustomed to continual conversation with him in freedom and simplicity. Speak to him every moment. Ask him to tell you what to do when you are not sure. Get busy with it when you plainly, sees, when you plainly see what he requires of you. You see, this, this life that we live, it's God's life. And that means... When I'm at work. It also is when we're at play. Again, this is one of those areas where, like, there's church, and that's serious. And then there's play, that's not serious. As if God has no sense of humor. Now, honestly, looking at some of you, I know God has a sense of humor. <laughs> I wasn't looking at you, Steve, at that moment. God's got a great sense of humor. There are some funny things in the Bible. And the reality is, is that God created rest and play. And the reality that, that that's somehow excluded from my life with God or that's somehow like not sanctified or can't be sanctified is just irrational. Now, I'll be honest with you, I am 
probably the biggest stick in the mud you'll ever meet when it comes to certain things. I'm so, I was so uptight as a young adult. I really was, really uptight as a young adult. And, and I, enjoyed, I enjoyed laughter and games like that. I just never thought of it as spiritual. In fact, I always felt kind of guilty enjoying myself because I wasn't praying. Never understanding that there was sort of like, no, you can pray while you're having fun. It's okay to include God in these things. But the reality is, is that, is that there, God loves play. He loves play. And, I mean, you think about, like, my wife's the director of a preschool. And the philosophy of the preschool is this. And that is that children learn best by playing. Not by doing worksheets, not by memorizing tables when they're like two and three years old. I mean, there's lots of push to make preschool academic. And she's holding the fort, you know, trying to hold the bulwark back against this insanity. But the reality is, is that we learn by play when we're little. And the reality is, is that if we don't keep learning by play, we cut off a large part of our life, not only from God, but from ourselves. Many of you might remember the film Chariots of Fire. It was a film made back many years ago, back in the 80s. And it was about Eric Little, who was an Olympic champion, an Olympic runner, who was also a Christian, and who also was a missionary, and who also was martyred as a missionary. But he loved to run. He loved to run. And this is what he said. I believe God made me for a purpose. But he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Now think about that. There are things that God has made you good at. Talents, hobbies, interests that you have. Do you think that they're yours by accident? Do you think that they're yours because you thought them up? Or that somehow you made them out of yourself? No. God is amazing. I mean, think about the variety of things in this world, the creation he has made, and we're still discovering things. And the creatures he has made, in all their beauty and all their wonder, and the glory that they speak of him in terms of his creativity. And now think about every human being that's on earth right now. There's over 7 billion of us. Now I can't empirically verify this, but I've been told that no two of us are exactly alike. I'll have to take that on faith. But if you assume with me for a moment that's true, think about what that means. That God's glory is so great that no single one of us could ever capture it or reflect it. And it would take billions of us, each of us unique, with our own personalities and interests to begin to show forth his glory. And that includes the things that we are 
interested in. John Piper in his article, Softball, Sex, and Augustus Strong wrote this, Therefore, as we pursue our recreation, let's pursue it to the glory of God. God wills recreation. He also wills it to be in on it. It is crazy to think that God would create in us certain desires, ordain the innocent means of satisfying them, and then spoil the whole thing if we pause to ask his blessing on it. On the contrary, he won't spoil the fun. He'll enlarge it and purify it so we don't go home feeling crummy about how we acted. He'll transform the game into a little slice of joyful life and turn the field into a diamond of grace. When you think about your life before God, think about how recreation can be used for his glory. Well, another writer says this, as one wit observed, the average American worships his work, works at his play, and plays at his worship. We don't have things in their proper place. We worship our work, we work at our play, and we play at our worship. Our recreation is not to be job-like, and it is certainly not to be worship-like but rather it has to have a proper place. It's a means to a better end. One last quote. Joe Thorne wrote in his article, Two Keys to Better Recreation. We abuse the gift of recreation when we live for it rather than use it to live. Let me say that again. We abuse the gift of recreation when we live for it rather than use it to live. Recreation is abused when it dominates our thoughts and time, when it overtakes its proper boundaries. It is used well when it's received with thankfulness, in joy, enjoyed in faith, and experienced as a means to a better end. What is that end? To love God with all my strength. You know, um, my wife and I, took my mom to see the film Downton Abbey. Any Downton Abbey fans here? A few people. You know, Downton Abbey is a fictional story about people living in the early 20th century. And the movie was a very interesting movie because the whole story, sort of like a little soap opera, but the whole story was about how the King of England was coming to Downton Abbey. The King was coming. He was going to be visiting Downton Abbey. And part of the drama of the story was that the servants were in a conflict over who would get to serve the king. You see, the king had his own entourage of servants, and then there were the servants of Downton Abbey, and that was the big drama, like who's going to get to serve and wait the tables? Who's going to be the busboy? Who's going to be the, the footman? And who's going to be the butler? And all this drama about who gets to serve the king. They were fighting for the honor of, serve the king. Fighting over who would get to prepare the king's meal. Fighting over who would get to wait on the king at the table. Who would get to be the footman and who could make the king's bed. Imagine that. When they were buying the groceries at the local grocer, the grocer says, these are the groceries for the king? This is the defining moment of my life. But you and me, we complain about going to church for an hour on Sunday. 
You see, God tells us that we are to love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And this attitude that we have to do these things is like the most perverse attitude we could possibly... I don't have to do this. I get to do this. God invites me into His presence and says, you get to love me. You get to serve me. You get to know me. As the Queen of Sheba said to that earthly King Solomon, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes have seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpass the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. Happy are Solomon's servants. Happy are Solomon's men. Why? Because of his wisdom, his glory, his knowledge. And he, well, what does the Bible say? There's one greater than Solomon amongst us. There's one greater than Solomon that we get to be a servant of. We get to do these things. We get to volunteer. Speaking of, the Psalm, uh, speaking of the Messiah, in Psalm 110 it says this, Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. It's a striking image. Freely volunteering to serve the Lord from the womb of the dawn. What a, what a picturesque moment. From the womb of the dawn, from the birth of the day. From when the day begins. You, you, they volunteer. From the very beginning of the day, they volunteer for you. And, and like the dew, they just show up. The dude just shows up. You see, here and now, given God's revelation, what is required of us here and now in this time and place for the advancement of the gospel and the building up of the body of Christ? The answer to that question is whatever it is for you and for me, it is essentially how we love God with our strength. This is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us. In light of that love, that love that wants us, though we have nothing to offer, in light of that love, that says, come just as you are, shall we not present our bodies a living sacrifice? Shall we not place our lives at his disposal? Shall we not give back to him all that he's given us? One final quote. This truth means that every closet of our lives needs to be open for cleaning. Every relationship in our lives must be influenced. This call to love God this way destroys any option of being one person at church and another person on a date. What you do on the internet needs to be just as pure as what you do in your Bible reading. 
The way we talk to our parents needs to be as wholesome as the way we talk to our pastors. There needs to be an authentic love for God that starts with God, oriented affections, God-oriented desires and thoughts that permeates our speaking and behavior, that influences the way we spend our money and how we dress and drive and our forms of entertainment, whether we're eating or singing, jogging or blogging, texting or drawing, love for Yahweh, the one triune God, true triune God, is to be seen in action and in deed. For as we sang twice this morning, I surrender all. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to consider the great commandment to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to recognize, Father, that it encompasses our entire existence from the womb of the dawn to its setting down. There's not a moment that we're not to be loving you, that our breath is given to us by you, and we should return it in service and praise and in a life dedicated to you. And so, Lord, I pray that as we sung this morning in the first service and as we sang again in the second service, to surrender all. Lord, we, we would say those words and there would be a little bit of hesitation because we know that we, we don't. And even in saying it, Father, it's more of an aspiration than it is a reality. But we pray in that song that you make us wholly thine. And we recognize that that's what you're doing. One step of the, at a time. One day at a time. Making us wholly yours. And so, Lord, as we go forth into this week, encourage our hearts with these thoughts. Teach us how to follow you. Teach us how to walk in these truths. Help us to embrace these truths even as we seek your face this day in all that we do, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.